Thank you, John. On Monday morning, when we were talking about how to do this, Cody looked across the table, and he looked, he looked a lot more at me than he did at Aaron, and he said, guys, but he looked at me. He said, we've got to stay on time if we do this. I thought, thanks a lot, you know, but uh, okay. So I promise, 15 minutes, that's the agreed upon time, right? Very good. I want to go back with you, uh, take you back with me a few years uh, to Mother's Day 2012. I had visited a church in Charleston, South Carolina. My sister lived there. She was graduating from college, and uh, my wife and I uh, wanted to go to a church that morning. And serving in ministry, you know, sometimes it's nice to go to a church where nobody knows who you are, and nobody asks you questions, and nobody expects anything from you. And so we did that. We went to a church that had a great reputation uh, in the community and had been doing great things, and we're seeing lost people come uh, from all over the place. It's a really remarkable story. I still have high respect for that church, but I want to tell you something that really struck me as odd that morning from the pulpit. The pastor comes out, and, and he, he says to everybody, welcome, you know, this whole thing, and he says, today is Mother's Day. He said, so today my goal is to preach a sermon to mothers, and if you're not a mother, well, you probably won't get anything out of it, so you don't have to listen. I thought, there is never a time where I've heard more foolishness come from behind a pulpit than that moment. And so this morning, my challenge to you is that even if you're not a potential elder in the church, even if you have never really been that engaged in what we call polity or the organization of the church, even if you really, you know, don't care so much about what happens to our bylaws, my challenge to you would be this, that if you are a Christian and that if you affirm and trust and believe like we do that the scriptures are God-breathed and useful for teaching, there is a word here for every single one of us this morning. There is a word for potential elders. There is a word for the wives of potential elders. There is a word for all in the congregation who are going to hold elders accountable, who are going to nominate them, elect them, support them. There's a word here for children. There is a word here this morning for all of us. So that is my encouragement to you. And uh, because all three of us are going to be preaching, uh, we're just going to stand right now and rise. If you'll go to your Bible, go ahead and stand with me. Your Bible's in 1 Timothy 3. We won't do this the next two times, so there's no, no aerobics this morning. Don't worry. I'm going to read the first seven, chapter, first seven verses of chapter 3. And we're going to work through it in, I think, now about 12 minutes. And then Abram will come and speak to us. Paul says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that this is God speaking to us, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may be seated. This text is pretty straightforward. It's broken down, I believe, into kind of three um, categories here. The first category that we're going to explore is that of personal behavior. The second category is that of, of family management, family relationships. And the very last category is simply a good reputation in the community. What do the members of any given community have to say about the life and the character of an elder? So let's get to it. In verse 1, it says, this saying is trustworthy. Paul is, Paul is saying in the day, apparently, there were, there were lots of sayings, uh, Christian cliches. Cody talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And this was one of them that Paul is saying, actually, this one is a really good one. It's trustworthy. And it's this, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. That word aspires there is used only three times in the New Testament, twice positively and once negatively. And the other time that it's used positively is in Hebrews eleven six, 6, when it talks about uh, those of us who are aliens in this world and who are foreigners in this world, and we long for another country. We long to be with God. We aspire to be with him in heaven. That's the kind of language that we're talking about here. This is not just a, a whim this is not just something that, that we think is a good idea every now and then. This is something that burns in the heart of a man 
to serve God's church. Very likely put there by God himself to serve the body of Christ in any local setting. And so he says there, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now there's, there's a point of, of clarification here for us. And what I want to encourage you that next five weeks, even this morning, if there is something that you hear that, that sparks a question, something that you want further clarity on, we just do not have time to unpack all of this in its fullness. Please keep a note of that because on March 6th, we're going to have a potluck dinner and a town hall meeting where, where we can answer and hopefully deal with any questions, any observations, any critiques and clarifications that you might seek. And so please just jot those down, have those ready. Perhaps for some of you, this might be the first time that you've heard that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, restricts one particular office in the local church, in this case, elder, to men. And that's kind of hard for some of us. It might be hard for some of you. But I want to say unequivocally this morning that your church affirms the absolute right and responsibility of women to serve in all capacities in the church that the Scripture allows. We want and need godly women to lead in the church in ways that God has equipped them to do. And so what we need to see here is that this is, this is not an exclusion of women from ministry. This is simply an exclusion of women from the office of authoritative teaching and leading and preaching in the church. Paul would go on to appeal later in this letter, or earlier in this letter rather, to the created order. And he lays out a strong case for that that we don't have time to unpack this morning. But I would encourage you to study it on your own and then bring any questions you might have to that town hall. Let's move on to verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. And so you see here that Paul is really laying out, when you really think about it, except with one exception, what does it mean to be a Christian? Have you ever thought about this? That he's giving qualifications for church leaders, and there's one exception that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But every other qualification here is what it means to be a basic Christian. Let's ask the question, is it okay for a Christian to be a polygamist or unfaithful to his wife? No. Is it okay for a Christian to live in a way that would bring reproach on the gospel? No. Is it okay for a Christian to not be sober-minded and to not think clearly about the issues that we deal with? No. Is it okay for any Christian to be not self-controlled? No. Is it, any, is it okay for any Christian to have a not respectable reputation? No. Should Christians, all Christians, be hospitable? Yes. Let's skip teaching there for a moment. Is it okay for any Christian to be a drunkard? No. Is it okay for any Christian to be violent as opposed to gentle? This is starting to sound a lot like Jesus, right, in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us how his followers are to live. Is it okay for any, any Christian to be quarrelsome? No. Is it okay for any Christian to be a lover of money? No. So let that encourage all of us in the room, all of us who claim to be believers. Paul is saying, really, with the exception of one thing, this is just a list of what it means to be a Christ follower. This is a list of what it means to be a Christian. To live in such a way that you prove that you know who Jesus is. But there is an exception. And it's this. The ability to teach. Some of your translations might say apt to teach or given to teaching. That's an important distinction when we think about who is qualified to be an elder. Now I want to give a couple of caveats to that. Because it does not mean, and we, we have discussed this at length and we are in unison about this as, as your pastoral team. This does not mean that a, a man has to stand behind this platform and speak in a way that I'm speaking right now. That is not what apt to teach means. What it does mean is that this man can look into the scripture and disciple and teach other people in the church. There are a variety of ways that could occur. Anywhere from D groups to Sunday school, Bible study on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, teaching. It might even be perhaps an, an authoritative preaching role. But what we need to see here is that the, the, the qualification that sets an elder apart, basically from every other Christian, is that he is able to take the word of God and rightly divide it. That he has a grasp of what God says and that he is able to apply it to God's people. And so as you think over the next few months, who you might urge and encourage in this congregation to apply to be an elder, 
Think about the men in your life who have been able to teach you the Scripture, who have been able to communicate to you the truth of God's Word in a way that was compelling and challenging and encouraging. Think about those people. And then ask, do they match these other qualifications? Then they might very well need to be urged and encouraged to apply as an elder. So that's the first category, is this personal behavior, all right? The elder is supposed to be like this. And then we go to verse 4, and we see about his family. And I wish I could just skip this. Let me, let me just, can I get an amen, Cody and Aaron? But I can't. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. I mean, y'all, Luke, last night, even we went to the Easterwoods house, you know, like chairman of our deacons, praise God for having us over there. And Luke just was acting crazy. And uh, there was nothing I could say to him that was changing his mind. And so last night, he just wasn't submissive. I'm just going to be honest with you. But he is too. So there is that little caveat. But here's the deal. Here, here, I am both challenged but also encouraged by what I see here. If we did not have the first part of verse 4, he must manage, we would all be in trouble. Nobody that you have ever looked up to as a pastor, that you have ever looked to for spiritual guidance, that you have ever seen as a potential elder would be qualified. you know why? Because every single one of their children is rebellious from the womb. Amen. The two little babies in our, in our houses. From the womb, they just do things that they're not supposed to do. And so what we need to see here is that this is not perfection. This is not perfection on the part of the children of elders. Not in the least, but I was encouraged this week as I read an article by a man named Jason Allen. He's the president of one of our Southern Baptist seminaries. He said this about this verse. This does not mean that we exhibit perfection, but that we handle our imperfections in biblical ways. So essentially what we see here is that a candidate for eldership or someone who has already been given that role needs to exhibit the qualities of a good Servant leader in their home, someone who manages their house, someone who is active in the discipline of their children, someone who is active in the discipling of their children. That's observable. That's observable. And we can remember that Proverbs 22 6 is not an absolute guarantee, right? Train up your child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's a proverb, not a promise. So just because a man has an unbelieving child or a rebellious child does not disqualify him. From being an elder. But if that man, Paul says, is not managing his house, is not leading his house, and that is verifiable over a period of time, then what does he say? If he cannot do that appropriately, he has no business caring for God's church. It's that straightforward. And it's that humbling to those of us who have been called to this task. And so I would just covet your prayers, and I would covet your support and, uh, and your understanding. Um, when we don't do this in the best way, perhaps, that we should. We have to move on quickly to the last category of what does it mean to be well-known among outsiders. It says this, he, he throws this in there, he must not be a recent convert. Or why? He may become puffed up with conceit or pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Right? That was the devil's downfall, pride. Coming to God and saying, I want to be worshipped like you. And he was condemned for it. So we cannot, we cannot put someone in a position like this who is a recent convert. It is a recipe for disaster, but notice, not just for the church, but for the man himself. So we have to protect that. And then lastly, he says he must have a good reputation in the community. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. In other words, he cannot be living in such a way in the community that he brings reproach on the gospel. He cannot live one way in the church and one way in the community. And so as you think about who is qualified to be an elder and who you might consider and who you might urge to apply for this position, do they have a good reputation among outsiders? Now, they might be hated because they stand for the gospel. They might be hated by their, out, by their co-workers. Cody helped, helped me to see this today, um, this week when he said, you know, they may be, may be loathed for the positions they take, but if you went and interviewed their co-workers, they would say, but he's an honorable man. He's a man of conviction. He's a kind man. I, can't, I, I disagree with everything he stands for, but he's honorable and kind. That's what Paul is talking about here. Not someone who never stands up for the truth. Not someone who just backs down into a corner, but someone who is well thought of by outsiders. As I close, because time is short, I, I want to just tell you, yesterday um, I spent seven hours round trip in a, in a car by myself going to a funeral in Brentwood, Tennessee, at my former church, for a man named Gerald Stowe. When I read this chapter, 
Gerald Stowe is who I think about. He was the chairman of my ordination council. He preached my ordination sermon. He was one of the kindest men I have ever met. And yesterday, praise God, when, we, when they did his funeral, nobody had to tell a single lie about him. Nobody. Everyone got to say that he lived up to the standard that he had been called to as a pastor, as the leader of the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home for more than a decade, as someone active in the church where I served for years, even in his retirement. You all know those people too. You all have had those people in your life that are a Gerald Stowe, that you would drive seven hours one way and leave your family home to go sit in an hour in a service and praise God for his life. That's the kind of man that I want to be. That's the kind of man that I'm far from being. And that's the kind of man that we need to lead in our church. And so pray for us. Pray for us that we would be like Gerald. Let me pray for Aaron as he comes. Father, we do give thanks for men like Gerald Stowe. Father, nobody here knows him like I do, but, but as I describe him, countless people across this room are thinking of men like him who have who have been elders in their lives and pastors in their lives and who have led them in such a way that would cause them to say, yes, that is the picture that God is painting of the people who should lead his church. And so, Father, I pray as we move forward with these bylaws, as, as we set the course of our church for decades to come, I pray that we would take seriously what the Word says about who elders should be. And as Aaron comes, I pray that we would take seriously about what the Word says of what elders should do. And how they should function in the local church. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is clear. And we thank you that it guides us in ways that can please you. And in ways that we can live lives that bring glory and honor to you. Father, I pray you speak through Aaron now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn in your scriptures a little bit to the right. To 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you're turning there. You can clearly tell that today we're answering a few questions. Zach has answered what are the qualifications of an elder. And I pray that through the word of God that I will answer the question, what is an elder to do? I would also pray that you notice that we are holding firmly to the word of God in everything that we do. Our core value of start with the word is not just, those are not just words on a paper. They're not just a good saying that we think sounds good. And ending with our fifth core value being glorifying God in all things means in everything that we do, in every function and capacity that the church takes on. And so today, the word of God says, as the Spirit led Peter to write, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. We see that as Peter is writing to the churches, as Peter is carried along by the Spirit of God, and he is putting these words to paper and sending them out so that churches can, can hear and can see, he has opened up the book of 1 Peter and he said, I am apostle of Christ. I was there. I was with him. And I was an eyewitness to the things that were taking place. And in doing so, he lays out a groundwork. This is who I am. But then he comes into chapter 5 and he says, Listen, brothers. I'm not just an apostle of Jesus. I'm a fellow elder. I'm one amongst you. And as I am one amongst you... I am exhorting you, I'm mean, encouraging you, I'm attempting to teach you what it is that an elder should be in the midst of the congregation because it is not a task that should be taken on lightly. It's not a task that should be 
longed for out of our own desire, but only longed for by God placing that call and that desire in our hearts and us moving in an obedient direction to follow Him in that capacity. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is amongst you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So Peter says right up front, you are to be, as elders, you're to be shepherds. He goes back to this biblical illustration that has come from the very beginning. From David to Jesus to Peter to Paul to us. We are, as elders, to be shepherds. Well, we don't have very many shepherds running around White Plains, Alabama, do we? Let me tell you what a shepherd does. The first thing a shepherd does is a shepherd leads. A shepherd leads. He is called, he is directed, he is ordained by the church to be put in a position to lead the flock of God, to shepherd them, to point the direction for the vision of that congregation, to lead them in following, in obedience, whatever it is that God would have them to do. And so when we come to this, he is to lead. And then as that takes place, as Peter says, he's exercising this oversight. But it's, it's not an oversight that's done out of compulsion. It's not leadership that's done out of compulsion. Because when we really look into the biblical idea and picture of what leadership is and what shepherding is, it's one who would guard the flock. One of the primary responsibilities of a shepherd was to guard the flock that had been entrusted to him. That's why we see Jesus giving this picture of the good shepherd and the hired servant who doesn't care about the flock. When trouble comes, he runs away. These passages are helping the body of Christ make sure that the men who have expressed a desire to be elders and leaders amongst them are doing so out of a God-given call, not out of anything else. So he guards, and then he feeds. He makes sure that the people of God, he makes sure that the flock has everything they need to continue an abundant and a sustaining life. So that's the role that shepherds take in Scripture. It's the role that shepherds take amongst the flock. It's the role that Peter says, as elders, we should take in the body of Christ. We should lead, and we lead by guarding the faith, guarding the doctrines that have been put in place. We lead by feeding the sheep, by opening up the Word of God, by properly exegeting the text and opening it up so that you and I can understand. I was on the phone about two weeks ago with a professor at Baylor, and we were talking about an idea and a topic in theology. And he said, I can point you this direction, but it's a very academic work. He said, it's very scholarly written. He said, most people aren't going to be able to read this. And so I told him that as we looked at this area of theology, as we looked at this area of doctrine, that as an elder, one of our responsibilities is to take that, to understand it and lay it over the Word of God, allow the Word of God to penetrate that doctrine, and then bring it to the people of God so that they can understand and adhere to such doctrines. Because we guard the doctrines by feeding the sheep with the Word of God, by bringing everything back. But he says, you know what? I understand just as, as Paul has said, those that have a desire, here's a test, right? That's what we have qualifications for because not everyone who says I have a desire to be an elder is a godly individual who's longing to serve the people of God. He says, so here's some qualifications that can help guard and guide and point you in the right direction. And so we come to this text and he says, you're to shepherd the flock of God that is amongst you exercising oversight. But then he says, not out of compulsion should be a willing service to the people of God. Willingly opening up our hearts, willingly giving of everything that we are, willingly serving those that God has placed us in the midst of. 
not serving out of compulsion ultimately comes by loving the flock of God that he has placed you in. By loving the people of God in a way that you would sacrifice everything you have for their gain and for their benefit and their well-being. That's what a shepherd should be willing to do. And not out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. I look at this, and one of the first things that comes to mind is after spending five and a half years at Southwestern Seminary, watching individuals, and if you know the statistic, if you don't, I'll tell you, about 50% of the people who start at Southwestern Seminary and all of the other five Southern Baptist seminaries, about 50% of those who start do not finish. And I am convinced it's because many of them come out of compulsion, not from God's will, but mama's will. They're great kids. They're good guys. They're good godly men. They're leading in youth. They're leading in their college and career classes. They're demonstrating what a godly follower of Christ should be. And because that is so abnormal in the church today, someone says, you should be a pastor. And he thinks, that'd be a great gig. That'd be a great thing. And they move to seminary. And when the trials of seminary hit, and they are many, they walk away. Do you know what I say to that number? Praise God they walked away in seminary instead of walking away from a sacred desk and leaving a people in a lurch without a leader. Thank you, God, for placing those challenges in our lives. And then he says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Shameful gain doesn't have to be money. It can be power, be prominence, it can be prestige, it can be walking into a room and saying, yes, I am the pastor and all of these folks need to follow me because I'm the great leader. This is not for shameful gain. It's easy to pick on people like Creflo Dollar and other individuals who claim that planes are the only way they can talk to God and the Forget the demon boxes that are out there that everybody else has to fly in. It's easy to pick on those. But what about individuals who are doing it for another reason, who are really trying to do shameful gain, who are trying to gain something else in the community, something else in the church, something else that's not rightfully theirs. It's all shameful gain. We should be doing it out of the call that God has placed in our lives. Not because we're longing for anything, but to encourage, exhort, equip the saints of God for the work of the ministry. If we're longing for something other than equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, as elders, we're in it for the wrong thing. It's shameful gain, whatever that gain might be. And then not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You know, when we come to the idea of leadership in our society today, many times we're afraid of leaders. We're especially afraid of leaders who have strong personalities, who understand where they're going, where they want to be, and are moving that direction quickly. They scare us. But we're, as shepherds, we're called to lead, but not in a way that domineers. This goes back to Jesus with the disciples. What Jesus says is, you don't lord over the church of God the way that the Gentiles lorded over or reign those that are under their care or under their control. That's not the way the church functions. You function in the church as an elder by following God as closely as you can by being as obedient to the call of God in your life that you possibly can, by demonstrating that you have a vision that has been placed in your heart by God to take the congregation, and moving in that direction and equipping the saints to follow every step of the way. Not domineering, but being an example. If we tell you you should be making disciples, the question you ask of your elders is who are the disciples that you have made and who are the disciples that you are making? If we tell you you should be living godly and righteous life, say demonstrate that in the way that you have lived in front of us. Does your life match what you're calling the church to do? Are you leading us in service? Are you leading us in the way? Are you leading us in righteousness? Are you leading us in the word of God? 
Those are questions that are legitimate questions that should be asked, not can be, but should be asked of any man who aspires to be an elder in the church of God, who is leading the church of God. Does your life match what you're saying? If I tell you that you should have a quiet time and a devotional and you should be reading through the word of God together, am I? If I tell you that you should be taking the word of God to those who desperately need to hear because salvation comes through the proclamation of the word of God that those who are going to, to hell have never heard, who have rejected, they need us to take that to them. If I'm not going, then you better question whether or not I'm qualified to be an elder. Am I doing what I'm saying the word of God is telling me? Am I walking the direction that I'm telling you I'm leading you? We need to get there. In our congregation, you should be able to look at the five core values of our church. You should be able to walk up to our elders and say, are you living those out? The vision of our church, maturing and multiplying disciples. Elder, are you living that out? That's the vision God has given us. Are you walking in that direction? Are you serving in that capacity? Be examples to the flock in every area of life. No matter what it is, we as elders should be examples for you. And then he says in verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, as under-shepherds, as leaders, as shepherds in the church, as elders in the body of Christ, one of the biggest things we better ne never do is forget who the flock belongs to. We're under shepherds. We've been called to care for, to lead, to guard, and to feed God's people. God's chosen people are the people that we've been called to lead. And if we ever forget who they belong to, the consequences can be disastrous. And Peter is reminding them when the chief shepherd, when the head of the church returns, you should have been following him and asking them to follow you. This can't be done by one man. If Cody comes, he's going to expound on that further. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we ask that you would guard, that you would lead, that follow as eld Father, as elders, that we would be followers of yours and that we could sincerely look to the people in our congregation and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Longing in everything that we do to bring glory and honor to your name. <clears throat> Father, I lift up Cody to you right now. I pray that the words he proclaims are your word meant for this people at this very moment. But I pray that as he does, that you would take your spirit and that you would penetrate the hearts of every individual here with the truth of your word and the truth of the gospel. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's been the goal of the bylaws team. It's been the goal of the deacons. It's been the goal of your pastors throughout this process to hold up our first core value and to ask ourselves seriously, what does the Bible say? If we believe that the Bible is the only source of inerrant wisdom that we have access to on this fallen world, what is it that the Bible says? How is it that the Bible says a church should be organized? How is it that the Bible says that the church should be led? If I were to guess this morning, I would guess that most of you have never heard a sermon on that subject. Because most of us come from church backgrounds, most of us come from church histories that are actually largely indefensible from the Word of God. And so we want it to be different here. It is our desire that it be rooted in Scripture as firmly as we can root it. I do not believe that the document is perfect. I do not believe that our bylaws are infallible. I do believe that to the best of our fallible ability that they uphold the Scriptures. So I 
want to ask ourselves this morning, I'm kind of left with the really practical end of this, and I want to ask us, us this morning and answer three very practical questions in terms of bylaws. And the first question that I want to ask and answer is, how many elders should we have? How many elders should we have? Most of us come from a background of a single elder pastor. That we would have a single elder pastor and a collection of deacons. And so the single elder pastor is the primary CEO of the church, the decision maker of the church, the visionary of the church, the mover and the shaker of the church. And kind of everybody else just kind of follows his lead and follows his example and does what he says uh, unless it's heretical or unless it's, you know, really, really uncomfortable or, or, or whatever reason. But I want to ask, I want to push back on that and say, is that really the expectation and example of the New Testament? Is that really the way the New Testament shows the organization of God's church? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. Now if you know me, you know that the way I like to preach is to go to a passage and to preach that passage from beginning to end. And this morning it just does not allow that. And so I hope that you will be patient with me. But if you look in Acts 14, verse 23 is where I'm going to read to you. But what we have here is we have Paul beginning his missionary journeys and establishing churches, planting churches. Here in chapter 14, it's Paul and Barnabas doing this together. And as we see them setting up this, these churches, notice how it is that Paul sets up the church. Acts 14, verse 23. And when they, Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What I want you to see about that verse is you see the word elders there is plural, right? And then you see the word church there is singular. So you're talking about plural elders, a plurality of men in a single church. That you have a collection, a team of men that are coming together, appointed by Paul and Barnabas, committed to the Lord by them, anointed, ordained into the ministry for the leadership of every church, it says, that they planted. Now this should come quite naturally to the Jewish people. We know that, that the Christian way, the Christian wall, that Christ himself was given first to the Jews. And so we have here, even in Acts 14, primarily Jewish believers coming together, Jewish apostles organizing the church. And so it would make sense that they would organize it this way. Because if we were to go back into the Old Testament, what we would find is that the people of God were always led this way. If you were to go all the way back to Numbers chapter 11, what you would see is you would say, have Moses there, and he would say, the burden is just too heavy for me. It's just too much. It's just too overwhelming. I am just too inept in and of myself. And so what they resolve to do is they appoint 70 elders to help judge, to help lead, to help shoulder the burden of the people of God. Now this is not a direct, exact uh, replica of what we find in the New Testament example of elder, but what it is is a precursor. What it is is the seed of who the elders were to be. Who the elders that would lead the church, that would lead the New Testament church in the first century and onward until Christ returns is the evidence following what is seen in the Old Testament. Now maybe you would push back and you would say, but Cody... I know that when we read books like Acts, when we see things like this, that, per, that usually we see them as descriptive of what the church has done and not necessarily prescriptive of what we must do. That perhaps this is just Paul and this is just describing an instance in their ministry and that we are not necessarily compelled to follow that example. I would tell you that if Acts 14 was the only example, I would buy that wholeheartedly. But the fact of the matter is, is that the New Testament evidence is simply overwhelming. That the evidence is overwhelming. Consider in, uh, in Acts chapter 15. You can turn there with me now. You have the Jerusalem Council. They're, uh, they're, they're working to figure out the heresy of the Judaizers and whether or not the Gentile believers have to be circumcised and how much of a Jew does a Christian have to be to be a Christian. So, like, you can't be a Christian and not be a Jew, right? And so they're resolving this tension. And how is it that they resolve it? They bring the elders together. 
the elders together. Verse 6, right? They bring all of the elders together to, to collect wisdom, to collect counsel, to each contribute. You would go, if you were to turn on to Acts chapter 20, you would have the church in Ephesus facing the horrid enemy of the false prophets of Artemis and the economic collapse of Ephesus as they saw it based on this Christian way of life. And what does Paul do? Paul does not call aside a pastor. Paul does not call aside a particularly able Christian leader. Paul calls aside the elders, plural, of the church, singular, in Ephesus. And he charges them to guard the flock, to protect them from wolves. You go to the passage that Aaron just read in 1 Peter chapter 5. And what does it say? He says, I am a fellow elder with you, shepherd the flock, right? So all of us, as under-shepherds to the chief shepherd, shepherd the flock together. Other references would be Acts 11, Acts 21, Philippians 1, 1 Timothy 5, 17, Titus 1, 5, James 5, 14. As a matter of fact, throughout the New Testament, the word elder is always in the plural form, with the only exception being when it is talking about a sing- the qualifications of a single elder within the plurality of eldership. The evidence is overwhelming. And what I want you to understand about this plurality of men is that this plurality of men has a shared authority. That one man is not more authoritative than another man. That all of the the team of elders, the team of leaders, are to shoulder this burden together. Shoulder this burden collectively. We would think about Jesus and the way that he set it up, right? Think about Jesus when he has his disciples, the people that will become the apostles, will become the builders of the early church. Does he set one of them aside and say, you are the one that is in control? You are the one that is in power? No, in Luke 9, the opposite happens. Two of Jesus' disciples come to him, and they say, Jesus, who are the greatest disciples? Who will be at your right hand? Who will be at your left hand? Who is it that you see as the leader of the disciples? And what does Jesus famously say? Those that are greatest will be least. Those that are least will be greatest, right? That you are on equal footing before the kingdom of God. You are on equal footing in my ministry. Matter of fact, if we go back and we think about Acts 15, I think it would be a great case study. I wish we had more time to get into it. But if we were to look at Acts 15, what would we see? We would see a collection of men equally speaking to the subject at hand. If we were going to Acts chapter 20, again, he doesn't call us out a man. He calls together the men. 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock together. Now I think this brings us a pretty interesting question. An interesting question for me especially. If the church is to be led by a plurality of men, do we really need a lead pastor? If the church is to be shepherded by a team, by by a, a team of elders, by a team of leaders, is there still a a a place is there still a biblical precedent for having a lead pastor i believe that there is i believe that the the difference between the word lead and senior you'll notice you'll think about it in our church if you've been around for any period of time i kind of came as being called the senior pastor and now i'm being called the lead pastor now reason number one is there's just not very much senior about me amen but the primary reason that we wanted to make that shift is that it says something. Senior says that we have a CEO with a board of directors. That we have a CEO with a team of subordinates. But lead pastor communicates something differently, or at least in the way that we use it. It's the first among equals. It's a round table. We're not talking about a lone board table with the executive at the end and the board on the side chairs. We're talking about a round table with equal voice and equal authority but among whom there must be a decision maker. Among whom there must be someone that can speak to the people with a voice of solidarity, can speak to the people with a voice of vision. Though all the elders at times will speak, there is throughout the history of the church and throughout the New Testament a single voice that is most prominent. If we were to look among Jesus' disciples, though we have already said they have equal authority, 
we would, must also acknowledge they did not have equal influence necessarily, did they? Among the disciples, we have James, John, and Peter, who are the most influential. Among those, we have Peter, who is the single most influential of Jesus' leaders. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 15, once they arrive at a collective decision on what to do with the heresy that was in the church, it is Peter that speaks with a voice of solidarity to the people of God that what they might do. And so we need that. We need someone who is not the senior pastor at Iron City Baptist Church. May it always be said that the chief shepherd, Jesus himself, is the senior pastor. Iron City Baptist Church has never existed one year in her 129-year existence without a senior pastor. She has went without paid under-shepherds at times, but she has never went without a shepherd. Christ is on the throne, and Christ says, I will never leave you. I am with you always to the ends of the age. And brothers and sisters, you want it that way, don't you? You want it that way. You don't want the church in the hands of men alone. You don't want the church in the leadership of men alone. You don't want that. And you certainly don't want it in the hands of a single man. You certainly don't want it in the hands of one man with all the influence with all the power to do with it as he wishes. And so the way I would think about this lead pastor going forward, for me, is that first among equals, same in authority, different in influence, as the Lord sees fit. Now, the final question that I want us to ask this morning, we've asked how many elders should we have? What are, if we believe and affirm that the New Testament does have the expectation of a plurality of elders, what do we do to do with the, new te- with the lead pastor position? And then finally, what are just the really practical advantages to a plurality of elders? There must be a reason that the people of God were led this way, right? There's a reason that Paul and Barnabas saw it as wise that every church that they went to, that they would appoint and call up a, a group of men to lead the church and uh, ordain and anoint them into the gospel ministry. There must be reasons for this. So what are some of these just really practical, practical reasons? And I think if you took Acts chapter 15, just for time's sake, I'm not going to do it, but if you took Acts chapter 15 and you laid it beside these advantages, I think you would see each of them as being represented in Acts chapter 15 in the council of Jerusalem, okay? The first advantage, the first practical advantage to a plurality of elders is accountability. Too many churches have too little accountability. Too many churches have too little accountability. And it would terrify me to ever hire a lead pastor to a position or to hire any paid elder to a position that feared accountability because the only people that fear accountability are dictators. Now, the only way that you can have true accountability is if you have equal men on equal ground. It is impossible for a subordinate to properly hold accountable their superior. It is impossible for a lesser authoritative figure to hold accountable a greater authoritative figure. No, brothers and sisters, as Lord Acton once said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And let me just say, I am not the exception. I am not the exception. I love you. I praise God that so many of you love me. But I'm telling you, you, I cannot be trusted with absolute power and absolute authority. You need to be protected from me as much as I need to be protected from me. I am a sinner with a propensity to sin and a passion to sin and a love to sin. And I'm working in all God's grace to overcome and to put to death what is earthly in me. But I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. And so brothers and sisters, I, I tell you that our church is just too valuable. Our mission is just too great. Our cause is just too important to place it in the shoulders of one man and to send him on his way without any accountable authority. The second practical advantage is collective wisdom. Collective wisdom. Every elder, every pastor that you've ever had is a sinner. Maybe that's newsflash to you, but it's true, okay? 
Every pastor and every elder that you've ever had has an incomplete view of God and an unbiblical view of theology in some way. Every one of them has an incomplete view of God and an incorrect theology somewhere, somehow, some way. Acts 15 exists because Peter himself, we've already said he is the preeminent leader in the church. Peter himself had given himself over to the Judaizers and was requiring men to be circumcised to be Christians. This is why Galatians 2 says Paul rebukes him to his face. Because Peter needed the wisdom of Paul. Peter needed the accountability of Paul. Brothers and sisters, we are shepherding the flock through complex struggles, with complex people, and complex times. There is nothing cut and dry. I wish some of you could hear some of the stories that I hear. Actually, I don't wish that for you. Praise God, you don't have to hear some of the stories that I hear. And let me just tell you, I need some help. I need some help. Amen? Aaron hears them. Zach hears them. number of Respected men in our congregation, hear them. We need a, a place to pool our wisdom together so that we might know how to navigate these difficult waters. Because the stakes are just too high. The stakes are just too high to trust one man's fallible wisdom. To trust one man's incomplete view of God. To trust one man's incorrect theology. And then think about what happens. So we're talking about unpaid and paid elders, right? That, that both have the same authority. That both have the same seat at the table. That whether you're a layman that goes to Honda every day, or you're uh, the paid elder that, that labors in preaching and teaching and, and delivers it from the pulpit each way, that you're sitting around the round table with the same authority. Now think about what this does wisdom-wise. How many times have you been at a church with a single pastor or a single elder and him leave and the whole church just seemed to collapse around him. How often does that happen? All the time, right? Why? The vision goes with him. The wisdom went with him. The leadership went with him. The accountability went with him. But if we have a team of people, some paid, some unpaid, if the Lord did call away one of the paid elders, we have continuity. We have continuity of vision. We have continuity of leadership. We have continuity of accountability. It moves forward. It presses on. Because it was not built on the shoulders of one man. It was not built on the shoulders of one man's personality. It presses on. It's healthier for the church, see? Thirdly, balancing weaknesses. Balancing weaknesses. C.S. Lewis says that every man has a fatal flaw. That every person that has ever lived has what you might consider the fatal flaw. That part in them which they are completely unaware of. You know how there's like some things in people that you know and that you notice and like keeps you awake at night and you're around them and it immediately frustrates you and you're having conversations with them in your brain? There's something about you that does that to other people. Right? That every pastor, every man, every woman that lives on the other side of Genesis chapter 3 has a fatal flaw. And so what we need is a group of men that can counter one another's weaknesses, that can bring together their strengths. That's been one of the goals of all three of us preaching this morning, is to see we're all pretty different, right? I think there are things that Zach does well that I don't do well. I think there are things that Aaron does well that I don't do well. And perhaps by God's grace, there's something that I do well that they don't do well. But the Lord can bring all of us together and the Lord can use his weaknesses and my strengths and use my strengths to offset his weaknesses and his strengths to offset my weaknesses. That he brings his specializations and I bring my specializations and he brings his specializations and John brings his specializations and whomever else the Lord raises up here to be lay elders brings their specializations to the table and rather than focusing on our weaknesses and being bootstrapped by our weaknesses, we are able to come together with our strengths and to use what we do well for the building of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. You see, church leadership should be a microcosm of the church herself. And is that not how Paul describes the church? That we are one body, but we are many members. That it's a diverse group of people. 
from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of experiences and all kinds of abilities and all kinds of skill sets and all kinds of influence, that it takes all kinds coming together, locking together in one spirit, the spirit of the Lord himself, to move forward as the church. Our leadership should be a microcosm of this beautiful diversity. And finally, sharing the burden. I've already told you that this is why Moses initially felt led by the Lord to raise up elders in Jerusalem and set a, or in, in Israel and then set a pattern for them to follow. But the pattern is the same today. If I'm honest with you, ministry is a paradox. There are, are no joy like the joys of ministry. And there is no sorrow as profound as the sorrow of ministry. Back in September, a, a story that I shared with the personnel team this past week. Back in September, I thought something was wrong with me. I found myself having difficulty sleeping. I found myself always feeling insecure in so many different ways. Even though the giving was up, and even though the attendance was up, I always felt like we were like one week away from the whole church just collapsing. I would repent and think, Jesus, I know I am secure in you. And I would preach to myself, and I would run to the word, and I would, I would pray, and I would pray. And then a new crisis would come up, and a new criticism would arise, or whatever it might be. And it all started over again. Perhaps it's my fatal flaw. But I was questioning whether or not the Lord, whether or not I had really understood the will of the Lord correctly. Am I just too weak? But I went to Africa, as you might remember. And while I was in Africa, I was with a pastor there named Steve Mann, who was a pastor for over 30 years. And I began to feel safe with him. And I told him what I had never told anybody else, not my wife, not any of you. What I essentially just laid out for you. Hoping he would give me something Expecting that perhaps he would tell me that I was in sin and that maybe I even needed to leave the, leave the pastorate. What he said shocked me. And Steve looked back at me and he said, Cody, we all feel that way. We all feel that way. That is the cross, the unique, particular cross that we bear in the ministry. It is that insecurity that causes us week after week, day after day, moment after moment, study after study, to look to Jesus and say, I don't know what I'm doing, and I need you. This burden is too heavy for one man to carry. It is a burden that we, in fact, all carry together. See, one of the things that I had never thought of until I came to search the scriptures and what it would say about church government is I had never considered who pastors the pastors. You know why we have pastors? We have pastors because the Lord knows we need pastors. We have pastors because we know, the Lord knows that we need men to speak his word into our lives. We have pastors because we, the Lord knew that we would need him, someone, to confront us in our sinfulness on a weekend, day in, day out basis. We have pastors because the Lord knew that we, in this spiritual battlefield that we are living in, would need examples and would need help in persevering. I believe one of the reasons that the Lord in the New Testament comes to expect a plurality of elders is that because within that framework, Every pastor has a pastor. Every pastor has someone to love on them and to shepherd them and to minister to them. Every pastor has someone to care for their heart. Every pastor has someone who's preaching they can sit under. Every pastor has someone who can, who can push back on their flawed theology. Every pastor needs a pastor. In 129 years in our church's history, We've never had a pastor stay longer than seven years. And that only happened once. By God's grace, by God's call, I am resolved to exceed that by many decades, I hope. And I pray.
And I'm not saying this is the only answer in how we finally resolve and solve that, that, that problem. But I do think it's a big way. And I do think it's one of the primary ways. This morning, as we set to chart the path for Iron City, not just in the next year, not in the next couple years, but perhaps the centuries that is to follow us, I invite all of you who consider yourselves to be faithful members of Iron City to come and to pray for our church, to pray for our elders, to pray that wherever it is that the scriptures say that that's what we would do and that's what we would follow. If you're a leader of our church, I invite you to come and pray. If, you, if this is the kind of church that you could see yourself being a part of and that this would excite you, I want you to come, come forward, talk to one of our pastors, that you might join this body of believers. This morning, you don't know Christ, and you want Christ, and you realize your own inadequacy, and your own need for accountability, and your own need for wisdom, and your own weaknesses, and your own burden that you're carrying, which is your own sin. Come this morning. It is Christ that is the solution. Let me pray for us.